0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad clinical psychologist Chris Mackey and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings.
1: G'day, Dad. How you going today? Good, thanks, Ryan. Good to be with you again on the podcast. Always
0: good to be with you on the podcast, and especially for a topic like we have for today, it's just a, a fascinating topic that we'll be doing a bit of a deep dive in today, and even over the next couple of episodes as well, Dad. We've got, a, I suppose, a, a mini-series here with a couple of episodes on schema therapy and... We've called these, I suppose, series of of episodes, The Essentials of Schema Therapy. So today's episode is Feeling Disconnected and Rejected. So we've already done an episode on schema therapy. Dad, I believe it was number 87. So what are we going to be talking about today that we haven't already
1: covered on the podcast? Okay, well, we can do a bit of a deeper dive into schema therapy, which was a very important development in psychotherapy generally and certainly in the cognitive behavioral field. Because what was often happening with CBT is a number of clients would be seeking help for depression or anxiety or anger problems or relationship problems and maybe weren't responding so well to some of the standard CBT techniques, which would often have been offered in maybe 10, a dozen, 15 sessions, something like that. But a number of people seem to have more complicated problems, if you like, because often with Psychotherapy, it assumes that people are going to have a certain level of insight or awareness into their difficulties, that they're going to be ready to engage with a therapist, that they're going to be prepared to do homework exercises in certain ways. That if you look at highlighting people's patterns of thinking that relate to their feelings and emotions, that by stepping back from people's thinking, A principle of CBT, you can identify the distorted thoughts and maybe alter them in a way that helps improve, if you like, your your feelings, leads to more balance in feelings and behaviour. But a number of people had more complicated personality difficulties. And so Jeff Young, a clinical psychologist in the 1980s and working closely also with Aaron Beck, Jeff Young developed this notion of schema therapy where he identified 18 different kind of patterns of reactions that people had that related to how they thought about things and felt about things, how they reacted in certain emotional or relationship kind of situations, and he spelled out the flavour of these kind of difficulties. Now, they actually overlapped with often what would be called personality disorders in conventional psychiatric terms. So in psychiatry people might be described as having a borderline personality disorder. If people had impulsive behaviours and often disrupted relationships and if they were emotionally quite unstable in different ways or it could be an avoidant personality disorder if people had great difficulty being assertive or mixing with other people or were somewhat socially isolated and there'd be other kind of personality disorders like dependent personality disorder or paranoid personality disorder, a whole range of different personality disorders. But the problem with that is often that term in itself would seem quite judgmental. If you describe someone as having a personality disorder, it's as though this person had like a really problematic personality in some way. Whereas what Jeff Young did is identified there's certain patterns in people's reactions and behavior that link fairly closely with childhood experience. And the ones we're going to look at today is when people had experiences in childhood that related to rejection or abandonment in certain ways. So there was disruption to people's attachment. And that would leave people to feel disconnected and rejected in certain ways. And so there were certain patterns of thinking, behaviour and reactions that people would have if they had certain kind of experiences in childhood that would help account for why they had these disruptive patterns in adult life. And the idea of schema therapy was to identify these kind of patterns and then have some more powerful ways of addressing them, partly by not just looking at people's thinking but have deeper ways of getting at their emotions and relationships and some of that actually involved chair work the therapy involved chair work often and that's a link with our previous topic which was on chair work
0: well certainly and as you say like it, it is just a fascinating era of psychology but I think there's almost a, a bit of an enlightened aspect too like as you were saying you know like we've mentioned on the podcast before about personality disorders and maybe specific personality disorders that have come up but I think you're right when you say there is this element of maybe pejorativeness to it by describing someone as having a personality disorder, like, you know, disorder. It's not unordered. It's almost looking at someone as having this, say, inherent flaw within themselves and their personality that the way that it's described, it's almost as if they're, you know, unable to say fix or or change that too readily or easily. And Like, it seems to me that, you know, say, if we go back 100 years, even 50 years or so, like, if someone acted quite differently to, you know, quote-unquote normal, uh, but if someone acted in ways that were a bit strange or a bit different... We might have a tendency to label them as being, for example, weird or crazy. And it again kind of perpetuates this idea that people are inherently flawed in a way. And I really like the way that Jeff Young would describe, for example, life traps that people can fall into. Or I know you've described it as, for example, where people crash up against the rocks sort of thing over and over again. So it just seems to almost remove the person the fundamental person from the difficulties they're going through because you know we can all fall into certain traps in certain ways like that's you know no one's kind of impervious to, to falling into a trap here and there but it's a very different emphasis as for example saying someone has you know a, a disorder which you know is, is likely to you know it's embedded into their personality
1: in a way that's going to be slightly more permanent than
0: if they've just fallen into a bit of a trap for
1: a little while. Yes, so I think it allows for a more optimistic approach because I think that there are two things that are really important as a therapist if you want to help people with very significant, maybe long-term problems or more severe personality difficulties. And these are the two things. First of all... You need to go for the darker side of people's experience. So that's what I say about people crashing up against the rocks, where again and again and again in people's relationships or their work life or their mood over a period of time, this is where people keep on getting into difficulty. Now, I think that many forms of counselling that don't dive deeper into those darker areas are going to be less effective. And this is a limitation, I believe, for example, in positive psychology Now, positive psychology can be incorporating different psychotherapy techniques, including schema therapy, but the vast majority of people who practice positive psychology won't be trained in these kind of methods that get at the more dark, difficult aspects of people's personality functioning and therefore might miss what needs to be addressed because that's where the problems are coming up again and again and again. So we need to go for the more difficult areas, the more problematic areas, to get the most efficient change. But secondly, we need to be optimistic. And I think in the past, often the approaches that focused on the difficulties were also pessimistic ones. For example, psychiatrists working in psychotherapy would often focus on personality disorders or be looking for the pathology, looking for the darker side of things. And as one psychiatrist said, who was the clinical director of our hospital in the 80s, He just said very directly, if people were over the age of 40, then there was very little that they could do to change their personality. Well, that's just untrue, but also it's very pessimistic and it's unfortunate if negative attitudes or a negative outlook is untrue as well, but it would lead people to try less in terms of helping people change. Whereas when schema therapy came along... There was a lot of evidence that started to develop that showed that people even with significant long-term problems could make change. And certainly it was encouraging to go to a presentation at a clinical college conference last year when Chris Lee, an Australian clinical psychologist, presented data from many different groups who were part of a research team internationally, a research collaboration that showed the benefits of schema therapy for helping people with personality disorders at all these different centres around the world. There's a lot of evidence now to show that people can change these longer-term patterns and there's nothing that says that it can't work after people are aged 40. And certainly in my own work life, I've seen many people make very significant changes in their 40s and 50s and even in their 60s and beyond because people do have a capacity to step back from their reactions, to take a different view of them and to practice different kind of behaviours. It's true that the more long-standing the problems, the more severe they are, you need to be more patient often. And often changes will be gradual, and we're not saying people necessarily get to the stage of completely eliminating or completely undoing some of the difficulties we talk about. But people can make dramatic change with them so they have much less negative impact on their life.
0: it strikes me as a, a slightly bizarre notion in some ways to say that people can't change their personality after forty. Like for example, if someone, I don't know, like had a had a grandchild, for example, like you'd think that'd be quite a profound experience which would change them in a way or you know the way medical science is these days plenty of people are having even their first children in some cases after the age of 40 so like you think that would just be one event that could change someone profoundly so it seems a bit of a a bizarre idea in some ways that you know from the age of 40 that's us and we've got no hope of of changing that in the future but talking about schema therapy like there's elements of cbt which obviously are, are brilliant and really helpful to people but We've spoken about it a little bit before where part of the goal of CBT in a way is to treat symptoms like for example someone can come in with anxiety or depression and so they go through a course of therapy in order to help alleviate some of those feelings but the elements of schema therapy that we will discussed today seem to me to be a little bit deeper than that in terms of maybe some of the motivations for why someone could become depressed or anxious maybe multiple times over a couple of year period having gone through some courses of therapy. Like It seems to me that, that schemas and, and what we'll be talking about today almost get more at the crux of maybe why someone has some recurring difficulties over a period of time.
1: Yes, and actually, in the first instance as therapists, we do tend to treat, say, anxiety and depression as the initial target first, and that's usually the most efficient. And even in schema therapy, they say, hey, don't use schema therapy straight off if people mainly are having problems with panic attacks or a depression in reaction to a recent event or something like that. First of all, you use the more standard techniques for anxiety and depression. But just say if someone does have recurring depressions and they're following the end of relationships and the relationships are ending because of the disruptive patterns that come up again and again and again in the person's life, or just say the person and keeps on getting in a relationship with partners who are abusive and alcohol or drug dependent or if people continue to have relationships that break down because they're so over-focused on their work and other things that they're not investing anything much with their partner in their relationship or otherwise people get so clingy in a relationship that it pushes their partners away. Now you can see these underlying patterns that are sometimes troublesome that might lead to the end of relationships or might contribute to people getting burnt out repeatedly or might lead to other patterns in everyday life and you think, well, wait a minute, let's not just focus on the anxiety, let's not just focus on the depression, there's something underneath all of this, there's a pattern underneath And what we're looking at today is the underlying patterns that are to do with disrupted attachment in relationships where people might be repeating patterns from their childhood in adult life, often without realising it. And as you said before, like, we'll go over all
0: of the schemas, really, over the next couple of episodes, but I believe these are, are some of the,
1: is it maybe more common areas where people can run into difficulties with their schemas? Well, certainly these are the ones that Jeff Young identified looking at a whole range of clients and the patterns of difficulties that they had identifying, say, 18 schemas in relation to five different areas. And the five different areas relate to certain basic needs that people have and when these needs were disrupted, especially in childhood. So, just if we look at the basic needs, the ones we're focusing on today relate to the need for connection and a safe environment, a safe, secure, nurturing environment to be raised in. If that doesn't happen, then people tend to have disrupted attachment, and that's what we're focusing on today. But also, people have a need for a degree of autonomy, a sense of identity and competence in some way, and in a Next podcast, we'll look at where that could be disrupted in certain ways. People also need children, need realistic limits to also learn appropriate self regulation, self control in their further life. People need the freedom to express their needs or emotions, their valid needs, their valid feelings. That's important. And people also have a need to be able to be somewhat spontaneous and playful. And now, if these needs are disrupted, by, for example, critical, rejecting parents or not having the opportunity for freedom or autonomy or not having appropriate limits set, then that's going to be disruptive in people's life in certain ways. But if people's sense of attachment and safety with their caregivers is disrupted because, for example, their parents might be abusive or neglectful or overly critical and that can tend to lead to certain patterns in people's behaviour down the track that needs a degree of effort to undo so to speak and so people will vary in how they respond to these childhood experiences but it is likely that if people have very disrupted attachment if they're raised in very abusive environments or non-nurturing environments then it's somewhat predictable that people are going to have some kind of difficulties in relating to others or their personality functioning later on and it's such a fascinating way to look at it in terms of these 18 schemas come
0: out of maybe a frustration of these five main needs that we had like i've heard a i believe it's actually a russian proverb it might have even been in in one of leo tolstoy's books but basically the notion is that happy families are all kind of happy And unhappy families are each unhappy in their own individual way. And I reckon it can almost be applied to people as well in a way in terms of, you know, there's kind of similarities between people who are all kind of flourishing in a way. But at the same time, if people maybe do have some of the disrupted needs, well, it can manifest in just a, a whole range of different ways. And even the interplay between some of our different needs and to what degree they were met or not, it can maybe come out in a way that maybe seems a little bit strange or is a little bit hard to get our head around at times. But to me, it really simplifies it to look just at these, say, five main needs. And we'll, of course, go through connection and, and safe attachment today. But as we go through them over the next couple of episodes as well, hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense maybe if there are people you know, in your life who are a little bit strange or a little bit different or it's a little bit hard to conceptualise at times why they're acting in a certain way. To me, these needs and maybe people's lack of getting these needs met at different times, particularly in early childhood, can be illustrative of maybe why people are
1: acting a certain way that we may not fully understand. Yes, and just to take one example of that, just say if you know that someone really wants to have a long-term relationship, but again and again and again, when they get into a relationship, they come across as overly clingy. And not just clingy, but to such a point that they drive their partner away. And to other people, it looks obvious that if the person keeps on being as demanding or clingy, then the relationship's going to end, and then it ends, and then you think, well, wait a minute, this person's brought about the opposite of what they actually want. But when you think that maybe that person has an abandonment schema, meaning that they anticipate that relationships won't last, and that one way of responding to an abandonment schema where you expect a relationship won't last is to even unconsciously act in a way that will push the other person away, so you're almost like cutting your losses before a relationship has a chance to develop anyway... If you realise that people sometimes overcompensate for this kind of view, so then they're overcompensating for their sense of being abandoned by being over-clingy, but then it leads to them being abandoned, well, that actually makes a certain kind of underlying sense. So something which seems to make no sense, well, why are they driving the person away when that's what they want? But if you realise that what's driving it is a kind of fear and deep down how convinced someone is that they are unlovable in a way that people are just going to abandon them anyway, so in a way unconsciously why not get in first, well, when you look at it that way, it just helps make more sense of the person's behaviour. But for someone to change that kind of behaviour, they have to have a way of stepping back from it. And that's very difficult to do because at first the person just feels a victim oh, it's happened to me again, look, I wanted this person to be close and, look, I felt nervous that they were maybe getting interested in other people and so maybe I did react a bit clingy that way but I just wanted it to continue, the person might be quite blind to the fact that again and again and again they've acted in a way that predictably would lead the other person to leave. So when dealing with schema, that's an example of how someone really has to be prepared to step back and question their own ways of reacting, their viewpoint, their way of looking at things. And that can be very hard to do because our underlying reactions and patterns, these deep habits, they can be fused with our identity. And deep down, we can just feel it's true that, well, people will reject me or something like that. Deep down, people can feel so convinced it's going to happen that that drives their behaviour. So that's an example of a deeper underlying belief and how it can, well, get out of whack.
0: Well, certainly, like, in in some ways, as you say, like, that makes
1: perfect sense.
0: That if someone had internalised that maybe they were going to be abandoned or felt like they were going to be abandoned in some ways why wouldn't you get on the front foot and sort of try and get in front of that and maybe retain some sense of control in that situation if it had been happening again and again and again. But as you say, I wonder if there could be maybe a degree of self-fulfilling prophecy that could come into that at times where if we view ourselves through maybe such a lens as as that, as, as someone who's likely to be abandoned or maybe worthy of being abandoned in a way, well then as you say it's almost like yeah whether it be consciously or subconsciously or I imagine uh, maybe even a mixture of both at times you could see how people I suppose would not want to be in that situation in terms of feeling completely out of control and so they would look to maybe retain areas of control but let's actually get into some more of the, the schema so I've spoken about the needs but what are the schema and how maybe
1: do they relate to those core needs? Okay, well, let's say we look at schema that relate to a sense of rejection or disconnection. So this is when people's needs for a safe, secure attachment, a nurturing environment were thwarted in some way. And I think that you're really onto something the way you described that it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy if people have this underlying belief that something will go wrong. But what Jeff Young did very well is he helped bring a bit of specificity Is more specific about the range of ways that, for example, people might feel that their relationships would end because they're unlovable, for example. So in CBT, people might look at a kind of core belief. What is the person's core belief, which is interfering with their relationships? Their belief might be, for example, I'm unlovable. But it's more specific if we look at the way that the person reacts to feeling unlovable or the other viewpoints or habits that can go with that so some people have an abandonment schema so beyond just the notion of maybe feeling unlovable the person might believe that others won't stick around that nurturing figures or future partner they're not going to be there they're not going to be available or they're going to abandon them or inevitably leave them well that can lead to certain reactions that can become self-fulfilling for example someone can settle for being with a partner who seems somewhat rejecting or not so available because that person might think, well, that's all they're going to get. But by the same token, the person might also react the other way and go very clingy, like I mentioned, but that also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's overcompensating in a way that can lead the problem to occur as well. Or just say if we take another schema, a mistrust or abuse schema, Now, you don't necessarily think that you'll be abandoned, but you expect to be mistreated by a partner. You expect to be treated abusively. And so, naturally, this will more commonly occur if people experienced abuse by their parents. And so, again, people might tend to pick a partner who's abusive because that's what they're kind of used to in a close relationship. Or otherwise people might overcompensate and maybe overlook the signs of their partner being untrustworthy and again being more vulnerable to that self-fulfilling prophecy. Or otherwise people might overcompensate by being a bit controlling or even abusive towards a partner themselves. And again, that will tend to lead to the other person responding in kind. So again, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy in a different way. But people can also be emotionally deprived, so an emotional deprivation schema. So they anticipate that others won't be warm or available or responsive to them. So again, they might be in a relationship, it might not be obvious abuse that's there, but the partner might be quite cold or unavailable in certain ways. And again, the person might think, well, that's all that they're going to get from a relationship. Or otherwise, the person might even overcompensate by becoming very demanding to their partner. But that might, again, just lead the partner to be more detached and, again, become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there's some of the core underlying ones, abandonment, mistrust, abuse and emotional deprivation. And what can go with that as well is what's called a defectiveness schema or a defectiveness and shame schema. So that's where the person feels that they're bad or they're unworthy in a certain kind of way. So, well, of course I was abandoned or no wonder my partner acts abusively towards me or I can't expect to get more warmth in a relationship because basically I'm defective, I'm not worthy. So these schema can happen together. In combination, and so, as we can imagine, a defectiveness schema will more likely develop if people had very critical parents. And then finally, a social isolation schema. So that's where the person maybe was raised in an environment where they felt very different from other family members I know, for example, some people who were raised on their own with very elderly parents and they didn't feel that they fitted in that family, the parents weren't warm or well connected with them and they might have lived quite some way away from others or they weren't encouraged to interact much with friends and so those people can really feel on the outer and develop this view that they're different and they don't belong with peers and with others. So again, these are different flavours or ways that people can feel disconnected. Well, I guess the
0: thing that really comes across to me there and I think it's important to highlight as well, like a lot of what we're talking about, for example, would develop really before someone notices it. Like if you're in a a family setting where you don't particularly feel connected, you might be, say, for example, emotionally abused or neglected in certain ways, like that could happen and, and those, say, schema could develop really before we have any real sense that they're being developed and then you can see in some ways how that could become an entrenched pattern just because, you know, it's, it, it's no one's fault to be in that situation, to maybe experience that lack of connection. But it is interesting as you go through those because you, you can really see how feeling, say, yeah, maybe rejected by your family could come out in those different ways in terms of either abandonment, mistrust or abuse, emotional deprivation, feeling defective or being socially isolated. But Dad, I wonder if it would be worth maybe even going through a couple of examples of, I know you've got some client stories from over over the time where, Where basically you've interacted with people who've encountered different problems with different schema and I think it can be very illustrative to maybe go through some specific examples. So maybe if we go through each of the five schema that we've mentioned and maybe you could tell us maybe a bit of a story about how that's come up for someone. So if we start with the abandonment schema,
1: what's an example of of someone who's maybe struggled with abandonment? Okay, now the examples I'll use for each of these will be about clients who displayed a certain pattern that on the surface could seem weird or difficult or as a therapist it could be frustrating or could make it more confusing as to how to work with that client. But if you step back and think, well, what can help make sense of this behaviour? Is there maybe some clue that gives us about how the person sees the world and other people and their past? So another way of looking at it, is there some kind of schema that might be out? activated here then this might be illustrative so there was a lady that I've mentioned before in a podcast I think the earliest schema therapy podcast who clearly had difficulties in connecting with other people she'd had no long-term intimate relationship in adult life she had few friends no true friend even of the same sex, for example, this lady would have been in her late 30s when I would have had contact with her mainly. And so basically she was very much living on the outer. She lived on her own and she often felt disconnected from other people. Well anyway, this was quite some way into our therapy and she'd been making headway in different ways, but there were lots of complications that had come up. And well, at one point in a therapy, she rang me up one time between sessions and I had encouraged her to only call me if it was a significant kind of reason. But this was maybe reason enough to call me, maybe a milder reason, but anyway, she called me. Anyway, I responded to that phone call briefly and then she rang up five minutes later and she said, Oh, look, I know that you'd said that I should only call you for something important and now I called you just before. Now, look, I'm wondering if that means you won't see me anymore because, like, I've breached that rule kind of thing. I've called you when I wasn't meant to. And I said, we have a time next week. I'll see you next week. In other words, I wanted to keep it short and sharp but let her know I was still seeing her but not let that phone call go on longer. Anyway, she rang up a little while later and she said, oh now look, now because I've called you again and you said not to call you and I called you again, now that probably means that you won't see me anymore. And it really seemed weird because this person had been making some genuine progress. We'd had contact over some years and I thought, what's going on now? And it was actually frustrating that she'd rung up several times and it didn't seem there was a particular reason to ring up. But then... And it might have even been a fourth time, but just say it was that third time that she called me and I thought, look, there's something strange about this. This is maybe, it was frustrating for me as a, as a therapist, but it seemed strange. She said that this means you won't see me. And I thought, well, what can make sense of this behaviour? People usually act with some kind of reason behind it, even if it's unconscious. And then it just seemed fairly obvious that she was acting in a way that would almost prompt me to reject her or stop seeing her. In other words, it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. She was fearful of being abandoned by me. That had come up in different ways and yet was acting in a way to make it happen. Now, once I recognised that, then I could just say to her that I won't allow you to force me to reject you. I'll see you next week. Now, there was actually a dramatic change after that. And what happened is she came in the next week and it's not like she was all agitated or something like that. Actually, I think we started off that next session almost as though nothing had happened at first. We did come back and discuss that phone call. But there was something that maybe was curiously reassuring to her. And I suppose the thing is it was calling out the underlying pattern that in a way unconsciously she was acting to try and get me to abandon or reject her and I was kind of saying well I wasn't going to allow that to happen. I could see the pattern that was happening. So maybe that's an example of what's called in schema therapy a kind of empathic confrontation. There was some element of setting limits with her but by the same token it wasn't just judging her it was recognizing something that would happen actually that did really help our relationship progress to another level that kind of disruption didn't happen again in the same way in our relationship and that person did continue to have some very significant difficulties but i think that there was more consistent progress from that point
0: well, that's a, a really interesting example because okay, in some ways obviously we, we get your side of it obviously it was a a little bit frustrating, I'm sure, in a way, but also there was a real sense of, hold on, what, you know, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Whereas, you know, without, you know, obviously don't know her and um, yeah, don't know anything about her other than what you've just described, but in some ways, as you describe that, you can almost see how... She potentially could have been thinking in a way, you know, like she's made the initial call and it's not as if she's going to be thinking consciously like, oh, you know, all right, how, you know, this therapy might be going well, but like how can we get him to sort of cut it off so that, you know, I'm not left rejected in the future, like her kind of somatic feelings on it would like I'm sure be you know, may, maybe even say feeling guilty after calling you the first time and thinking, oh, no, I, like I'm, I might have really transgressed here to the point of, you know, being cut off. Like you'd see how someone who I suppose is in that emotional state could be thinking, oh, you know, I need some, say, reassurance in a way. or And, and so you can almost see how someone in that situation could kind of make those phone calls, even though, as you describe it, obviously it's, you know, we sit here and talk about it and it seems a little bit maybe different to I imagine many of your other clients who probably don't kind of call you and then and follow up phone call you as well so like it just shows I think that example of how you know like she wouldn't have been deliberately trying to get you to reject her in a way she's probably feeling you know I've transgressed and how can I be reassured right now but the underlying thing is as you say it seems to be that there was a a sense of abandonment there and and maybe she was maybe subconscious but
1: she was aware of that being a possibility yes well look. one thing I might mention as you describe that it reminds me that often this comes up in a more subtle way it's almost a rule of thumb as a therapist that if you see someone who's had very disrupted relationships in the past often combined with impulsive outbursts and reactions that way say people have been diagnosed with a borderline personality disorder for example this pattern can come up more often in therapy the first couple of months can be like a honeymoon period and as an experienced therapist what you're often anticipating is that the person might cut up a bit rough around about the two month mark, meaning initially the person's looking to establish that relationship but then there are disruptions like the maybe the client doesn't attend as frequently or maybe they're reacting negatively to things that come up in sessions in certain ways there's more disruption that comes up now to an inexperienced therapist that might be the sign of a problem and they might feel a bit bothered thinking oh the therapy isn't going so well to a more experienced therapist you think ah now we can make further progress because the person is allowing some more unacceptable parts themselves to come to the surface and also they're challenging this relationship continuing because underneath it all they might well have an abandonment schema and unconsciously acting to maybe potentially bring about the end of the relationship or otherwise test it out to see if it can continue through a challenge when you're aware of that as a therapist it helps deal with those situations and dare I say it helps you respond without being as judgmental
0: well that's so interesting and like it just strikes me that maybe we might talk about this a little bit later on but if someone has an issue with schemas then you know that's their paradigm in a way in terms of you know that's all they know in a way and so you can see how that pattern would keep coming up again because there'd be an element of, I suppose, comfort in terms of, you know, you're not necessarily outside of your comfort zone because you're essentially doing what you've always done and, and maybe, you know, you think this is me, this is my identity, this has, you know, happened my whole life. So you can see how, how that could play out. But if we go to, to mistrust and abuse, the next of the 18 schemers, what's an example of, of a mistrust and abuse schemer coming to the fore?
1: Okay, well I'll mention an example which was a striking example to me at the time and at first I felt, well, this is a very unfair reaction on the part of the client but again, soon it was important to step back from that and then think, well, what might be behind it? And I think it was a mistrust and abuse schema. It was actually a war veteran that I'd been working through some trauma memories with and we'd worked through some combat experience memories but also it was clear with this person that a lot of the disruptions to his life were in his early life experience. His father was in fact very abusive and that was confirmed by the members of the family. The father was physically abusive, emotionally abusive, very critical. He'd even abandoned uh, this person and his siblings on a porch. He'd left them on an aunt's porch about five o'clock in the morning in the cold not told anyone he was leaving them there and so basically was not at all a responsible parent apart from being abusive in a range of ways as well but anyway this client had particularly wanted me to use a kind of therapy with him to also explore some of his childhood memories And I'd actually been very careful about that. I'd left it at least a year until I agreed with him, despite his urging again and again to help him process some of those memories because he had made progress in other ways. And so I thought, okay, this might be the time to do that. Well, anyway, when we went through a session of EMDR, he did have some memories that came up that neither of us would have anticipated it was of particularly abusive behavior of his father toward him. and it was a very distressing reaction that he had to that. And in a sense both of us got more than we bargained for, but he was in a hospital setting. I was you know, careful about using these trauma, Therapy techniques, and so I knew that he was going to have 24 hour care, whatever came up. Because when you're doing trauma work with people who've had maybe an abusive childhood experience, there might be more than you were aware of that might come to the surface, and that certainly happened in this case. Well, anyway, the night staff were very confused because this fellow had got up during the night, he was normally right handed. I believe he wrote this with his left hand. Interestingly, his father, I believe, was left-handed. But he wrote this note saying, Daddy, why are you hurting me? Now, I think that was a comment that he was making that related to me as a therapist and what we'd done during the session that day. He would have seen me as a kind of meant-to-be-nurturing kind of authority figure maybe in some ways as a therapist but it just seemed to me that even an unconscious level, he was reacting as though I'd gone through a therapy with him that evoked these very painful feelings in him, therefore I was hurting him in some kind of way. Now, later on, and we did have further sessions to deal with and process what had come up, but later on he actually uh, made a complaint at the hospital about me having used that therapy with him, despite the fact that, We'd had a very good therapy relationship for quite a long period of time that he'd been pressing me for more than a year to use this therapy. I'd only used it with him in very careful kind of circumstances. But that was one thing I became of the hard way, if you like, that there was a part of him that would be more wary about trust in a therapist as well. Actually, in different ways, our relationship transcended that. In future, we had some further contact in different ways, but it also led me to be extra careful, if you like. Uh, Not that I wasn't careful beforehand, but that's the kind of experience certainly as a trauma therapist that you learn from experience and also you anticipate as well that when you see clients have experienced a lot of past abuse or trauma, especially at the hands of their parents, that there's likely to be a degree of potential mistrust or concern about being hurt by the therapist as well so it's something that's very important to factor in because these perceptions can be unconscious
0: well again like to me it just comes back to that idea of you know if you hadn't known anything else for well seemingly your whole life in this case but for example you know you, you hadn't had that experience of maybe benevolent authority figures if that makes sense people who you know do want to get close to you for for certain reasons but if in the past people have transgressed against you and and made you feel real pain like oh it, it just it's it makes so much sense that people would have that wall up and be so mistrusting of other people who could potentially put them in that situation
1: Yes, and so all these examples that we're using, abandonment, mistrust and abuse, and the next one, emotional deprivation, that's where it's so important, the therapy relationship, because ultimately what the therapist is looking to do also is to provide the person with some kind of corrective experience, a different experience than what they experienced in their childhood. And so that's again where it comes in, that combination of empathic confrontation Because without some level of confrontation, the person's not likely to alter their thinking and reactions, but also the limited reparenting. So very supportive relationship that looks to be based on trust. Well, I think it gets,
0: you know, maybe trivialised a little bit in popular culture and, and, you know, you hear it come up from time to time, this idea of, say, regressing to childhood. Like, it's, I wonder if it is trivialised because people, you know, like me, haven't studied psychology, don't have a lot of experience with that thing, like... It seems kind of so almost out there and and strange and you kind of wonder how it could happen. But as we go through this example, that seems that it could be a lot more common than than maybe I even realised before this episode. But the emotional deprivation
1: schema, how could that come up with someone? Well, look, I suppose the most graphic example I can think of is a young woman that I saw many years ago at the hospital. Well, she would have actually been a teenager. I think she would have been about 18 years of age. She was raised in a country town, and sadly, both of her parents had a fairly severe form of chronic schizophrenia. So she was basically parentified she was like the parent in the family from when she was about 10 years of age and she was looking after a younger brother I would say from about that age so she would have had to do many things in the family home she was more a carer for her parents through her teenage years than the other way around now that meant that there was a lot with that girl that was under the surface and it was very difficult to connect in different ways because we're looking at someone developing trust in someone else when they'd been raised in an environment where there weren't secure trusting figures that she could relate to. Now, how that partly came across is that she would sit across from me with a wall of hair between us, meaning she had, say, you know, quite a long fringe, but also she'd be looking down, her head would be down, and her hair would be over her face like a complete wall. So talk about disconnection. It was very difficult to reach this girl and so we'd look to talk about different kind of topics if you like safe kind of topics things that she might have had an interest in talk a little bit about what was happening at school I'd certainly ask her a bit about her brother didn't talk much about her parents and look I'll, I'll mention another example where something didn't work out so well in therapy so hey here are a couple of examples I'm mentioning where that was the case well Fortunately these are quite rare situations but I think I showed some misjudgment and after a long period of time I thought I'm going to try to get through to this girl a little bit more and we'd met for about a year and a half by this stage with what I would say was very gradual incremental progress in some ways but certainly I had a lot of contact with her to look to build the trust and one day I just said to her I wonder if you feel angry towards your parents well that might have had a degree of truth in it in fact from her reaction I believe it had a degree of truth in it but was it helpful it was too much she got up from the chair she cried out no no she ran down the corridor she actually ran down the hospital stairwell and she was calling out and crying no no and you can imagine how her cries were going right up the stairwell and would have been loud even for people in the ward upstairs and I thought talk about an empathic mistake on my part she was not ready to hear something like that and yet my hope was maybe that would be a way of getting in touch more with that side of her that was way too blunt and that's where a lot of techniques in schema therapy much more dare I say gentle and gradual and inviting people into certain kinds of imagery exercises or even role-playing exercises but lots of discussion so we looked to challenge people in a way that they, they were ready for but with this girl it was very challenging for her to receive help from someone who was maybe at that stage I might have been six or seven years older than her or something like that and I was basically looking to be as helpful and supportive as I could be And unfortunately, she'd lived such a, I suppose, separate uh, life from other caring figures, but also in terms of challenging her, in terms of her feelings or reactions to her parents, it was maybe certainly a bridge too far for her to acknowledge what complicated feelings she might have had when her parents were quite helpless they were probably doing in a way the best that they could the main thing that this girl probably needed was a whole range of other supports around her and maybe social work supports for the family and they had certainly some of that but uh, in this situation I think that she was so used to not having her needs met in a certain kind of way that it was also very difficult for her to be involved in a therapy relationship.
0: And I suppose that highlights in a way how, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't straightforward. Like, always, oh, you know, have this sense sometimes, you know, we speak about things on the podcast and it can seem kind of simple in a way, but like we're, we're talking about potentially people who've got quite ingrained patterns that have been going on for many, many years and that, you know, as we said, they, they might identify with in a way and it can provide a sense of comfort and also there can be that aspect of, you know, If people have uh, maybe a bit of a wall up and, and haven't had the experience of, of, for lack of a better term, peeling back some of the layers and looking under the surface, well, that could be so confronting for people as well. So I suppose it just highlights the need to maybe have a bit of empathy as well for if people are acting in a way that is really kind of you know bizarre and and strange on the surface like you know if you were maybe in another room and you just heard someone you know running down the stairwell kind of screaming out and and acting in this way you'd think goodness me what's going on there but as we speak about this it, it certainly makes a lot more sense that that people could act in that way based on their experiences but if we go to defectiveness and shame like it Strikes me that this is maybe a, a schema that maybe is a slightly different layer to some of the other schemas for lack of a better term, because, you know, if, if someone's experienced abandonment or abuse, well, they could internalise that to feel defective. So how could that come up for someone if they
1: have a, a defectiveness or shame schema? Yes, well, often if people do have an abandonment schema or a mistrust and abuse schema, often they do also have a defectiveness schema because especially if the abuse or the neglect was from a very early stage in life, then often people develop a bit of the feeling, well, I wasn't so lovable or worthy or maybe I wasn't treated well because of you know me, something being unlovable about me. And when an infant isn't treated well... Well, up to the age of six or eight years of age children are quite egocentric, they feel the world revolves around them. So if bad things happen, the child tends to blame themselves for that, whether it be trauma or whether it be being mistreated. So especially that early childhood experience, it's very important for children to be in safe and secure environments. Otherwise, they are liable to think, well, it's their fault if things have gone wrong. But how that often comes up in therapy is the person being very self-critical to the point that when a therapist looks to point out or reflect back things that the person might have done well or that they've achieved or positive qualities that they have, the person might really deflect that or deny that. Now, to a therapist, again, in looking to be encouraging in some ways or supportive in some ways, that could... Feel quite frustrating, you know. Truthfully and realistically, the therapist might be looking to say something empathically and supportive, and all the rest of it. And yet, the person might seem to be rejecting it. But again, what helps with, say, schema therapy, and just understanding that people's reactions maybe make some sense at some level, and they often connect with past experience. Well, you can understand where the person would deflect that. So, if they've got this deeper kind of belief that it was their fault that maybe they were mistreated as a child or not had their needs met and so they have this really underlying, built-in feeling of defectiveness, then they're actually not going to trust a therapist so much if the therapist is looking to say these encouraging things. And that's where, as an attuned therapist, it's important to be a bit balanced and pick your mark, what kind of feedback that you give, but also ultimately to have ways of calling out the schema which means identifying ways in a way that the person can hear about how they tend to deflect back the kind of any positives that that come their way
0: well it just strikes me that you know like th- this is complicated stuff even for you know certainly myself and i imagine when you first came across it dad to get your head around like with some of these examples like they they're complex situations and situations that to be honest are just too complex i think for a child to have to process and understand and make real sense of so that's where you know like we all really like i think tying a nice neat bow around things and and maybe if that was something that you had gone through in childhood like again it it just seems perfectly understandable that someone would internalize that to the point of going well you know what what's the common thread here you know it's it's me in in all these situations that i'm coming across but As we'll speak about a little bit later, it it shocks me you know, it doesn't mean that you have to feel defective forever. But, Dad, the last one,
1: social isolation. How can that come up for people? Okay, I'll just mention a couple of examples. The first one was quite stark. A young fellow, he was a similar age to myself. We would have both been early 20s at that stage. This was right early on when I started as a therapist. But he came in in army camouflage pants, And so this seemed pretty odd. That wasn't very common in those days. But what was maybe more odd with this fellow is he had a fantasy of dying in a shootout with police. So he really felt so much he didn't belong, so alienated from other people, so disconnected that he actually had this fantasy of, well, never connecting with people and creating all this mayhem So the main thing I realised I needed to do with this fellow is to form some kind of relationship with him. Fortunately, there are actually a lot of things about him that I really liked. He was interested very early on in personal computers when hardly anyone knew what a personal computer was. He was interested in certain types of music. He was an intelligent fellow. So there are a whole range of things that we found that we could get on some kind of wavelength and talk about. But it was very gradual, the progress in therapy, because this fellow also would have had very much. much failure schema in different ways and in terms of finding work and connecting with people much in his life was very disrupted but he was someone who'd grown up in an environment where he was very detached from his parents. That was one example where they were quite elderly, not warm at all. There was nothing much between them. It just seemed to me when he talked about his parents, it was really hard to get a sense of a true human connection there and unfortunately that had become very twisted with him. I think that also at school he would have been alienated from many of his peers. There might have been bullying as part of that as well. So that was a fairly stark example. i just mention a positive story about him. I saw him about twenty years later. It was actually in an outdoor sporting store, and uh, he told me how he was married. He had a child. There was a lot about his life that was quite checkered in terms of his work life. I think much of the time he'd been unemployed, but it was actually satisfying that he'd been able to form a long-term relationship with someone else, have a family of his own, and I suspect that a lot of his life was quite difficult, but certainly he went in a very different direction than dying in a shootout with police. So I think that was one thing that, um, to me, was very satisfying about the length of contact that we'd had earlier on. But just as one other example... Another lady who actually often sat there with a wall of hair separating us and who was quite detached in many ways. It was very difficult to make a connection in terms of conversation about meaningful things. And I remember one day actually asking this lady if she'd ever heard the expression, no man is an island. And funnily enough, that was a day that I will remember because it was a day to do with synchronicity that people know I'm interested in. That day I saw six clients, and all six of them spontaneously reported something which was synchronistic. In her case, what she mentioned to me the following week is she said, hey, you know how last week you mentioned to me this expression that I heard, no man is an island? Well, she said in the last week, my mother had been doing this English creative writing course – And she was asked to do an essay, she wasn't sure what to do with it so she asked me if I'd write it for her and the topic was No Man is an Island. And at that time I thought, well at least I've got the universe helping me set some homework at the moment, there's something on site. But uh, even then that registered a little bit further with her and made it a little bit more meaningful, that theme, but by the same token it was very slow, very gradual progress. And as you can imagine, with each of the people that I've mentioned as... Examples with these schema, we didn't just meet for 10 sessions. The people I met early on at the hospital, several of them I met with for several years. And many of them had had experience of hospitalizations and very complicated experiences. So it wasn't like 10 or 12 sessions for anxiety or depression or panic reactions. These were much more complicated examples. And I've mentioned some of the starker examples here. They can often occur in a more mild form and I'm mentioning the stark examples to really highlight how they can present
0: well that's interesting as you're describing that there and yeah you know, it's a, a little bit of an aside in some ways but I, I think it is relevant in terms of what really came to mind when you're describing uh, particularly the the example with social isolation and, and someone in that situation is you know we've got all these for example school shootings in America which are just horrible horrible things but you can see in a way how in some ways that could be the manifestation of, of a social isolation scheme and it was it was interesting I almost had that thought and then you mentioned about how there was a fantasy of wanting to to be shot by police in a shootout sort of thing like it just strikes me that you know these things could be a little bit more prevalent and you know don't want to get too much into this but maybe sort of having ubiquitous access to guns isn't necessarily the best thing in any situation because there could be people who, who have difficulties with these schemas and, and that could be how it manifests.
1: Yes, that's a very important observation, that one. And what you describe, it reminds me of what Frank Vitkovic wrote. So the person who was responsible for the Queen Street shootings in Melbourne, I think in the mid to late 1980s, But he wrote something that he left behind after that fatal shooting when quite a number of people were killed. I think it was maybe something like a a dozen people at least, I believe, who were killed in that situation. But he said something to the effect of, look out for people who are on the outer, who don't belong, and who have a fascination with guns. So he's basically saying, look out for people with a social isolation schema, and a fascination with guns, and that's the massive problem I think they have in America with their gun laws and the availability of guns. There are going to be a whole lot of people who have that feeling of not belonging. But it also shows that if, as a community, we just get hung up on guns and gun laws, and don't also have concern for people who feel they don't belong and look at ways of trying to involve or connect people who feel they don't belong, well, that's a big part of the problem as well. And I think often it's too one-sided, just focusing on the gun side of the equation. What about trying to do more to help people feel more connected? So even though that therapy was very imperfect, I mentioned with a fellow who came in with the army camouflage pants and all the rest of it, it certainly was enough to help him form a kind of a relationship and from there also other kind of relationships that meant he was part of the community, albeit with, I believe, some ongoing alcohol and or drug problems, at least he was part of the community rather than this fantasy of just creating such havoc himself.
0: Well, I think it's, it's just come to mind that we'll, we'll certainly get on to the, the next section of the podcast in a sec. But I suppose I, th- I really just think it's worth mentioning there that it, it's a bit of a central point with this, like particularly for myself, Dad, like, you know, I don't necessarily have any issues with uh, with, with schemas and, and wouldn't necessarily require schema therapy. But I think there is a point there of, of looking at people who might have maybe some difficulties in this area and look at well, you know how can we connect with them in a way and even if it's to just maybe hold space for a little while and you know be empathetic towards whatever they have to say and it doesn't mean you know we have to sort of commit to the, whether we, you know a, f- a full scale relationship whether it's even in a, a friendship capacity as well but i think there are certainly things that you know anyone can do and you know certainly we can all do to maybe look to include these people a little bit more even if they have some maybe behaviors and thoughts that are a little bit hard to relate to in some ways or or maybe do seem a
1: bit strange Yes, so anything in our families, anything in our communities, anything that supports connection between people is going to be helpful. Anything that helps people feel effective and competent in different ways. So those basic kind of needs that we mentioned earlier, if it's not just in families and in schools, but if in wider communities that we do things that support connection, support acceptance – that are actually encouraging to people in certain ways. Now, mind you, there are still ways it's fair enough to challenge people in certain ways for their behaviour, including in therapy, involving that empathic confrontation. But yes, when communities have more opportunities and sources for connection, that makes a big difference for people's mental health generally.
0: And so we have mentioned some specific examples of some specific people who have had difficulties in this area and and how that's maybe come up for them. But maybe if we just go a little bit more generally, Dad, like I wonder how do schemas influence, for example, our thoughts, feelings and behaviours? Because it struck me before what you said about overcompensation, which I imagine is a bit of a part of this, but it's also something that I think we can all relate to in a way in terms of, you know, if I think back to to school, for example, and maybe there were some people who, who were... You know, bullies, you know, for lack of a better term, were engaging in bullying behaviour and I think there can be this aspect of, of maybe bullying where you kind of look at it and you kind of go, maybe it's a little bit of an overcompensation for an insecurity in a way and, and when people are acting so negatively towards others, maybe there is this kind of overcompensation aspect for something that is lurking under the surface for them in terms of a way that they're feeling negatively and and so wanting to maybe externalise that to others or or however it is. But how do schemas come up in terms of schemas being maybe these underlying feelings that we have, how do they come up in in our behaviours which are more surface level?
1: Okay, well there's three main approaches that people have to schemas when they get out of whack and this is surrendering to them like giving in to them looking to avoid them so they don't seem to have as much impact on one's life or as we've talked about with examples overcompensating for them so what happens if people surrender to them they'll more repeat the pattern so if it's a schema related to abandonment the person chooses partners who are somewhat rejecting or who act like they don't care. Mistrust and abuse. People choose partners who react in an abusive way. Or emotional deprivation, people who are cold and not giving. A defectiveness schema. Maybe in relationships, you know, choose partners who are critical. And social isolation, again, maybe either, well, just steering clear of relationships or just being in relationships where there's not much connection and settling for that. Or otherwise, people can look to avoid the schema. So if they have anxiety about abandonment, then they might just not get in a relationship in the first place. Well, that would actually be a common pattern for each of these schema if people are going to look to avoid the schema, so pretend it doesn't have so much impact in their life. Well, not be in a relationship at all means, well, you're not going to be abandoned or abused or deprived in that sense or treated as defective, but it's maybe just a defensive avoidance. Or people can overcompensate for the schema. So with abandonment, they can be overly clingy. With a mistrust or abuse schema, they might be acting in a dominating way to other people. If it's an emotional deprivation schema, they can be very demanding of their partner that nonetheless leads to more distance down the track. A defectiveness schema, like you're saying with bullies at school, they might be responding to an underlying insecurity by looking to put other people down. And just say with social isolation... People might maybe put some kind of mask on or pretense on the surface or feel like they're acting in a way to get other people's approval but still deep down feel like they don't have a true connection. So basically how people respond to these schemas is often in fairly defensive kind of ways to try and reduce the pain from the schema, like giving into it, avoiding it or overcompensating for it. But the alternative, and this is what therapy is looking to develop, is helping people develop their healthy adults, so to speak. Help people maybe come to recognise the schema, the impact on their life, recognise the feelings that can come up, maybe that are are triggered or associated with a particular schema, and then look to act in different ways to bring about a different ending. For example, being very discerning in relationships, looking to interact with others, but looking to have relationships that have a give and take. Um, looking to also give in healthy ways but also be open to receiving in a somewhat balanced way but a lot of that does relate to being able to set appropriate limits in relationships certainly to abusive behaviour but being discerning, looking to choose partners who are giving and that's the thing I often notice when people have one or more of these schema. Often what you see people look to do is they're trying to turn things around in a generation, meaning they're looking to raise their children in a secure and loving way. And often it might be imperfect, but that's uplifting. Because if people are raising their own children in a way that offers a degree of security, but they've come from relative insecurity, there's almost a symbolic way that the person's kind of reparenting themselves in some way. And as a therapist, you often point that out. If someone's also chosen a partner who's genuinely supportive and collaboratively joining with them to again raise healthy kids, that's something you really look to celebrate with the person. So even if they have the schema come out in different ways, at times they are more wary or distrustful or they think people are having a go at them or they're feeling insecure in a certain work interpersonal situation or whatever we often still try and point out those basic ways that people are looking to turn things around and that gives people a lot of heart when that's recognized and they can see how in these important ways they're looking to turn things around well i've
0: actually got a a couple of friends dad who i I think that's maybe relevant to it in some ways in terms of i think both of them they're a a couple and and Both of them had some quite difficult experiences in their childhood which are potentially ongoing in some ways in terms of still having contact with family members that that can be quite difficult in in different ways but I know from you know observing them and and their family like they have a young family now where like they very much have been able to do that. Like it was interesting I, I spoke to them you know quite recently and it was a a good little introduction for I suppose maybe doing this podcast dad because to me it just it highlighted so much the ability for people who maybe have had some difficulties no fault of their own can be you know quite tough to deal with over a long period of time even but to see that example where people can just create such a a wonderful positive environment for themselves and they probably wouldn't be as explicit about it as i am but i just they, they stick out to me as some friends who have been able to create just the most beautiful nurturing wonderful family and knowing a little bit more about them no, I, I think that would be, yeah, absolutely happy for me to say that they've both had some difficulties in their past that I think they've just both been able to transcend so well. So I think that is the aspect of, of this, that obviously there's people who have some really complex and difficult issues which can go on for a long time, but there is that uplifting aspect of... You know, there, there are things that we can do in that situation. But it strikes me that what you were saying about, say, the surrender, avoidance, and overcompensation like, there's an element of, of you know, obviously it's, it's a defensiveness, as you were saying, but, but people really wanting to get on the front foot with however they can. And I believe Jeff Young described it in the way of, you know, people are reactors instead of being actors so you know maybe these schemas can rob us of a, a bit of a sense of agency in terms of you know this pattern can come up again and again and again and we're reacting to the pattern rather than maybe the the ever-changing evolving circumstances in our life so dad what can we do in terms of if someone does have even some complex difficulties with with the schemas, what can we do maybe even in a, a therapy setting to
1: help tackle some of this stuff Okay, well, one of the things is often individual therapy is going to go a bit longer than certainly what I described earlier, the 10 or 12 sessions often that we see people for an anxiety reaction or for depression. But in this kind of situation, we would often be seeing people for certainly... 20, 30, 40 more sessions as well and certainly quite a number of people we would see for some years maybe on and off people might do a certain amount of therapy work for a period of time work on things for a while and then come back for further therapy down the track but it often does involve longer term bit more intensive individual therapy than certainly the more straightforward anxiety or depressive reactions that people might have but there are a range of different therapy techniques and I'll just flag some of them. We might even talk about some in more detail in future. But one of the main things is basic cognitive therapy techniques about looking for the evidence for and against a schema. So if the person says something to the effect that you know, they're no good, that they're not capable of things, they're defective in some ways, we ask, well, what's the evidence Now, sometimes we might ask it as explicitly as that, but with schema therapy, you're more looking at the longer-term evidence in people's lives. So if they feel defective, what, in every way? Have there been relationships where people have actually reacted towards them as though they were worthwhile? People people have maybe loved them, shown genuine friendship, that kind of thing. So you, you look for people to weigh up, a little bit more the evidence rather than just have this deeper assumption that there's something wrong with them. So, part of it is that cognitive thing of weighing the evidence. It's also looking at the impact of their beliefs. When people recognise they have these underlying beliefs of maybe being unworthy or that people will abandon them, then you can look at the impact of having that belief and how it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. So pointing out that self-fulfilling aspect of it, that can help at least loosen up the schema to a degree. It can help the person stand back from it a bit. But to truly help people appreciate these underlying deep beliefs, it's important that they can feel them, if you like, have the reactions that go with them. And that means that therapy often needs a more experiential aspect. Sometimes that comes up in the relationship itself with the therapist. Like if the person is repeatedly interpreting things that the therapist is saying as maybe having a go at them in some way. Or if the person's detaching themselves from therapy rather than engaging in a certain way or if the person's continued to deflect the genuine, favourable comments that the therapist is making. This is one example in real life of looking at how the schema might be affecting things in that particular relationship, the therapy relationship, and see if that's repeated in other patterns outside, for example, with other friends or co-workers, and that can help the person have more insight. But there's also chair work that could be useful, because when people have these schema they'll often have a part of them, we talked about parts with chair work, we all can have parts, but the person's likely to have vulnerable child parts to them, like a part of them is like an abandoned child, a part of them feels like an abused child, a part of them feels like a deprived child, and might come across as hurt or angry or impulsive in different ways. And what often can happen in schema therapy is helping the person get in touch with that vulnerable child part of themselves that feels hurt or rejected or abandoned and look to set up some kind of engagement with a healthy adult part of themselves in another chair. Now sometimes it might be the therapist modelling this, it might be the therapist modelling having a conversation with the vulnerable child part that then the client looks to draw on a healthy adult part of themselves to engage with that vulnerable child. So without going into the details of it, people can act out these different parts of themselves which tend to evoke certain kind of emotions. Or the person can also use chair work to imagine having a conversation with, say, an abusive parent or an abandoning parent or an emotionally unavailable parent. And in that kind of conversation with that parent, the imaginary conversation, and then imagining how the parent might react to what they're saying, and then interacting with a the therapist around that. Basically, that can be ways of also tapping into these deeper underlying feelings. But certainly with schema therapy, helping people identify the feelings that go with these kind of schema beliefs, looking at the behaviours that relate to that, including the surrendering and the overcompensating, the avoidance behaviours. And then basically what we're looking to happen is for the person to come to act differently in certain situations, to maybe be prepared to take educated risks in relationships, of allowing more intimate relationships to form gradually, of, of gradually accepting compliments from other people or being able to give some kind of affirmation to themselves in some ways. If they're experiencing social isolation, Like our podcast on addressing avoidance, dealing with those avoidant personality tendencies, looking to engage with people, go out of the comfort zone step by step, take some social risks. So ultimately it's about acting in different ways to help bring about a different ending, not just repeating the past, not just self-fulfilling prophecies. It's a gradual process, but if people ultimately are acting in different ways that lead to different outcomes lead to other people responding to them differently, then there's a real celebration about things gradually turning around. Well that is uplifting
0: in terms of it, it might have even been Freud himself who basically said that you know after the age of six, you know we're, we're basically preordained if, if we've been through difficulties, to continue on with those difficulties for the rest of our life. But what we've spoken about today and particularly what you were talking about there in terms of what we can do about it, like that really seems to, I suppose, disagree with that notion in a way because, you know, even if people do have complex difficulties, there are still things that we can do to help ourselves maybe struggle less acutely, for lack of a better term, with uh, with some of these difficulties. So oh, it's a, a nice notion to end on, Dad, but oh, I think it's, it's worth just mentioning one thing that it's come up on the podcast before but it really is worth reiterating that I think people who are experiencing these difficulties are in absolutely no way worthy of blame and I think you know maybe the way our society is sort of maybe in different ways that you know can manifest as sort of acting a little bit strange or a little bit weird in in certain ways or, or what might seem it but at the same time, I think once we've you know gone through all this sort of stuff, you realize that you know there's a whole lot going on under the surface for a whole lot of people who, to be honest, are doing so well to not let that come to the fore in every situation. Like that's one of the things that really strikes me is that you know there can be so many people who are really fighting a battle based on what they went through in their early childhood, and we might have absolutely no sense of it. So you know I might just come up in in a little bit of a strange behavior in a way and. And you know we can think, oh goodness, what's going on there? But I suppose, yeah, what what this episode is going to lead me to do is to think, you know, maybe there's something you know going on for that person that I can just have absolutely no concept of in the world. And so, you know, maybe they deserve the benefit of the doubt in this situation. But I think it's also worth mentioning as well that you know people's parents often aren't to blame, even if they maybe are the source of some of these difficulties, because as we've described a lot of this sort of stuff. It really doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility that you know a lot of this can come from a potentially even a cycle where someone might have gone through experiences themselves in their life, and you know this is was it the nineteen seventies that Jeff Young was talking about this sort of stuff? Like it's fairly recent that this has come into the vernacular, and we've got a lot more understanding about this. So there would have been you know hundreds and thousands of years where these cycles were potentially perpetuating without anyone who was involved in them having any idea you know, that they were going on and people were just internalising them to the point of feeling defective or, or feeling lesser or flawed in a way. So I think it is amazing that we've been able to get to this stage where we can have a bit more understanding of, of maybe the motivations for some of these behaviours because it, it's certainly not maybe obvious at times why people do act in a certain way but I suppose what really comes across to me is that, you know, there's a a whole spectrum of experience that people can go through and and certainly people can go through some quite dark and difficult experiences before they really even have a a chance to conceptualise what's going on for them.
1: Yes, and look, I'll just mention a few things in fairness to Freud because I think it's very important to acknowledge some things about his legacy that were actually very favourable. When Freud was emphasising so much the importance of the first six years of life, He had a real point, and especially when we're talking about these kind of schema and where people had very disrupted attachments. So there are many difficulties people can have with phobias or depression that, quite frankly, come from events that occur much later in people's 20s or 30s and beyond. So it's not always the first six years of life. But the more complicated problems, Freud was right that a lot of them are rooted in early childhood. Freud was also right to be the first person to popularise or educate, well, the world about the notion of the unconscious and unconscious motivations. Because when we're talking about schema, a lot of it is beyond people's conscious awareness. And also, in fairness to Freud, he also talked about a talking cure. He was one who looked to get people to, in a sense, reflect on their life experience and connect up childhood experiences with adult experiences and also the relationship with the therapist, what he referred to as transference, and look at understanding people's patterns from how they could come across, linking childhood, current relationships, relationship with the therapist. So again, there was a lot of wisdom that Freud had and he was looking at ways of improving people's mental health with psychoanalysis. So again, the notion of a talking cure. The only thing is a lot of it was arguably very inefficient. Going on over many years, people maybe two or three times a week lying on a couch, there's something about it that in some ways was maybe nowhere near as efficient, I would think, as many of the schema therapy techniques which also incorporate much of the technology of behaviour therapy and cognitive behavioural therapies but also experiential techniques including chair work, ways of evoking emotions. The therapist tends to be more active and directive than they would have been in a psychoanalytic kind of mode where it's more reflecting back, taking notes, occasional interpretations perhaps so i think that's the thing that's such an advance of schema therapy it's working with people with the most complex difficulties which freud was the first to get a handle on a real handle on but dare i say more efficient practical overall effective ways i think of getting at it and i think that was a great contribution of jeff young with schema therapy well i might have uh asked I might
0: have oversimplified and potentially even misrepresented Freud there. I'm, I'm actually glad that you picked me up on that because I'll tell you what, having a, a psychology podcast where you're potting Freud, it feels like you're shooting Bambi a little bit. As you started to uh, defend him there, I thought, hold on, that's uh, that's probably not kosher on a on a psychology podcast. But also just a, a, another thing that I wanted to mention too, like as we were discussing this, something came up for me in terms of. Like we've spoken on previous episodes about how, for example, psychology is often on a spectrum, and you know we can all relate in bits and pieces to, you know, basically every element of psychology in a way, or, or certainly a, a, a great number of them. And it's not to say that necessarily everyone would, would even benefit from schema therapy. I'm sure it's mainly people who do have, for example, complex difficulties. But it reminded me of something that actually it came up on a, a podcast recently where I was listening to someone who had a very compelling very well put together but slightly outside of view that he was putting across on this podcast i found it just incredibly refreshing that he was coming from this perspective that i must admit i i hadn't heard many people coming from this perspective before and he made a really interesting comment during that podcast where he said i've always been on the outside because i was adopted as a young child and it just struck me that you know Take the schemas out of things. Like I think I've heard that joke before, that without neurodiversity, we'd still all just be cavemen sitting in a cave. And so certainly the example of my friends who have been able to create that you know, wonderful family environment for themselves and who have as many kind of surface-level warm and fuzzies hanging around with them as, as just about anyone else I know, like I'm not sure that that would have come about had they both not had some difficulties in earlier life that compelled them to think, well, you know, what what do I want my family environment to look like? And and so for them in that situation, that's certainly been something that I don't want to necessarily call it a positive because I think that's unfair for me to say when they're the ones who've gone through these difficulties. But certainly being in that environment, I feel it a, a wonderful positive environment and potentially that's come out of having some struggles with with these sorts of areas and certainly that person on the podcast recently it was such a, a refreshing well put together kind of undogmatic view in a way and he described that you know he's often felt on the outside of things because he was adopted so i think it's also you know it's good to maybe celebrate some of our differences in a way and And just because, you know, people have gone through difficulties in life doesn't mean that they don't have, you know, anything to offer. I think it's potentially even, you know, the opposite is true in terms of people who do have a rich experience with, you know, all areas of life and it hasn't necessarily always just gone well for them. Well, they're some of the most interesting people that I've, you know, ever come across. And, And it's interesting talking about the schemas because I think it's an interesting context at least to think about it in because, you know, like, As I say, I I think potentially we can all relate on a level because you know there's no such thing really as a perfect parent. Like, sorry to mention that, but uh, you've done a very great job, and and I I certainly don't have too many difficulties in this area. But at the same time, like, there's not going to be anyone who. You know, at least at some stage when they were a young child and maybe were in that egocentric stage of life, something could have happened to them and they might have internalised that in a way and it's through no fault of their own and no fault of their, their parents potentially and I think Jeff Young sums it up in a, a really great quote that he wrote in one of his books where he said, try to respect the reasons your life trap developed in the first place. In your childhood, it was essential for your emotional survival but what was once a help to you is now hurting you and it's time to give it up it's time for you to begin the slow journey out of self-denial and self-defeat and to reclaim your life for yourself and i think for me you know that the reclamation the way that people do reclaim their life like you know as you say potentially there's always going to be a, a slight element of, of some of these schemas being there but it doesn't mean that people can't be very interesting have a lot to offer and just provide, you know, richness in relationships that potentially you wouldn't get with someone who's it has been smooth sailing the whole way, or at least relatively, because, oh, you know, who's ever really had it smooth sailing the whole way? But yeah, that's, that's I suppose, a, a final point that I'm
1: left with, Dad. Yes, a wonderful quote from Jeff Young, and it reminds me that when people are dealing with these underlying schema associated with real challenges in early life, it's a hero's journey. And there is something uplifting about that and you mentioned with your friends as well. Many heroes' journeys might be quite private. It might not be obvious on the surface and the challenges and the demons that people are fighting or dealing with might be from within and be patterns from the past. But that is a real uplifting thing about therapy. You often see people, even painstakingly, over a, quite a period of time, working through some quite profound difficulties and it really is witnessing that hero's journey unfolding.
0: Well, absolutely. And as I, I look down at the clock, It's it's been one of our longer episodes, but I think it's such a, a complex area and I know you've done just a... a vast amount of reading for this episode so i thank you very much for that because it's been great to have this level of detail on the podcast about what is really it seems to me quite an important topic and we'll just mention we've got episode 87 so some basics of schema therapy i think it was called it was maybe a little bit more of an introductory kind of maybe slightly less depth but a a good maybe first look at at schema therapy And, and if you're interested please feel free to go back to that episode there was last week's episode as well on chair work which if you haven't heard last week's episode now you've listened to this one that that might even become more relevant to you and for those who are interested in in this as a topic we will have a couple more episodes on schema therapy so chuck us a subscribe on the podcast and then you'll be able to get those episodes sent straight into to your podcast directory so dad thanks so much for chatting with me about all this and i look forward to the next episode
1: look forward to it rowan